Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabadie.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Jennifer Egan to Books, Books, Books to talk about her hotly anticipated and highly acclaimed seventh work of fiction, The Candy House. Jennifer has described it as a sibling to her international 2010 bestseller, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won several major awards and was named by Time magazine as one of the 10 best books of the decade. The Candy House is published in Australia by Hachette. Let me start by telling you a little bit about Jennifer. As I mentioned, she's the author of six previous books of fiction, including Manhattan Beach, winner of the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won the Pulitzer Prize, the LA Times Book Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award, Look at Me, a finalist for the National Book Award and The Invisible Circus, her first book, which was made into a film starring Cameron Diaz. Jennifer is a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Fiction and a Dorothy and Lewis B. Cullman Fellowship at the New York Public Library. She's also an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, Granter and The New York Times Magazine, amongst others. She has recently completed a term as President of Penn America. The New York Times described the Candy House as a social network a spectacular palace built out of rabbit holes, and The Independent has described it as a triumphant exploration of analogue versus digital, surveillance versus freedom, literature versus technology. Jennifer, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much for having me. Could I start by asking you to tell us what is The Candy House about? Sure. It's The Candy House is a kaleidoscopic uh, work which has an ensemble quality, meaning that there are 14 different points of view written about in very different ways that hopefully combine into one big story. And at the center of it, um, I guess a lot of this action revolves around an invention um, which is made by a character who played a very small part in A Visit from the Goon Squad, a guy named Bix Boughton who invents a machine called Own Your Unconscious that lets people externalize the whole of their consciousnesses, um, all of their memories, so that they can view them from a present-day perspective and access all of what they know, as opposed to the tiny amount that we actually consciously can retrieve of what we know and have experienced. And if people want to, they can also share all or part of their consciousnesses to a collective consciousness. Um, and if they choose to do that, what they get in return, of course, is access 
to all of the memories, uh, anonymous memories of other people who have done the same. So this machine functions in the book in a couple of ways. One is that just people use it in various ways, and we see that happen. Um, adult children are able to see events from their parents' point of view, um, things like that. Uh, but the other thing is that I, in a way, as the writer, use the machine narratively to enable lots of things that I couldn't have done otherwise in terms of um, entering people's points of view and justifying certain um, ways in which they move through their their worlds. So I think that gives you a basic idea of what it's about. Mm. So let's start by talking. That's a great description. We're going to come back and talk a little bit about those inventions, which, as you say, are central to the plot. Let's just start by talking a little bit about the relationship to A Visit from the Goon Squad. So in that book, you followed a group of characters who were associated with the music industry across decades. And you have said this about the relationship between that novel and this one. The Candy House follows a number of A Visit from the Goon Squad's peripheral characters into their own futures and pasts to create an independent work with a new set of preoccupations and centre of gravity, but equal affinity for technology, humour and structural freedom. Did you know when you finished writing Goon Squad around about 2010 that you were not finished with some of those characters and their stories, that there was more that you wanted to say about them? I think I did know that, actually, because even by the time that I was on my book tour for A Visit from the Goon Squad, I was actually already working on what became a chapter of The Candy House. I think it's the nature of these books, which are built around my own curiosity and what what catches my eye that I want to look at more closely um, and in which I enter so many people's worlds, which of course, each of which, of course, introduces a whole new constellation of possible characters to be curious about. There's a there's a way in which it's never resolved. What would that be? You know, um, so there were people I was I wanted to understand better. And there were also because of failures that I had with Goon Squad chapters that didn't work. And there's a high failure ratio with these books, I should say. Um, because of that, there were things that I knew that the reader didn't know uh, about certain characters that I wasn't able to work into the book, but I was left with information that I didn't want to hide. You know, in general, anything I know, the reader ends up knowing, even mm -hmm. though my books are pretty open-ended. It's not like I'm withholding information, but in these, in this case, I felt sort of like I there were things I, I knew that I wasn't able to share, and that also added to an unfinished quality. I'm interested by your use of the word failures in relation to that earlier book. Do you mean that there were some parts that you didn't include in the, in the earlier book that you've then come back to draw on? Well, I mean that in both books, because there's so much um, structural playfulness and in some ways, kind of struct radical structural approaches, there's a lot of trial and error that precedes that ever working. And sometimes I never can make it work. And often in the course of those false starts or dead ends, um, there are, there's dramatic incident that I'm not able to include in any other way. Things happen that, that just end up not in the book because they weren't good enough, frankly. They weren't part of a, of a, of a particular work that had the organic soundness to warrant inclusion. So there's a strange way in which I just naturally end up knowing 
more, which suggests, uh, you know, further exploration. I'm interested in that quote that I, I mentioned earlier, that you talked about the things that the two books have in common as an equal affinity with technology, humour and structural freedom. And I thought we'd start by looking at each of those, starting with technology. So the book opens in 2010 in New York City with Bix Bolton, who was a character, a mine or a less significant character in the previous book. Now in 2010, he's a 41-year-old black man. He's married to his university girlfriend, Lizzie, with whom he has four children. And when the book opens, he's feeling a combination of things. He's feeling nostalgic about their university days 15 years ago and the conversations that they used to have then. And he's also feeling a little bit dissatisfied about where he's at and where he's going next. So I'd like you to start by telling us who is Bix? What do we know about him? What what has he done so far when we meet him? So when we meet him, he has uh, he has invented social media in in the fictional world of um, the Candy House. In a way, we had a clue that he might do that in A Visit from the Goon Squad, where he makes a brief appearance and essentially predicts the effects of social media after a night of partying, standing standing by the East River, talking to two undergrads who were his friends, two guys. Um, he says, everyone we've lost will find or they'll find us. But this is 1993. So at that point, Bix was the guy, the only guy uh, who was actually online when the rest of us were like, what does that even mean? <laughs> um, so the idea when we see him in 2010, which is when the Candy House opens, is that he has invented social media, become ultra famous, you know, a single name uh, tech icon in America and the world. And but he is having a bit of a midlife crisis. He's 41. He feels like uh, his his inspiration, which led to social media, has, in a sense, been exhausted. You know, everything mm -hmm. that can be done with that is about to be completed. And the question is, now what? And he's having a little bit, I guess, of what you might call right. An analogy would be writer's block. When he tries to figure out what his next idea is, he just sees this kind of white expanse in his mind. And he's that's come to really freak him out. He's sort of haunted by this. So he becomes convinced that if he can actually return to that moment, that kind of milieu in which his original vision came to him, he will have another. But it's very hard to achieve that as a very famous person because everyone just tells him what they think he wants to hear. It's not, he's not, it's hard for him to be stimulated intellectually by the world around him. So, he goes in disguise so that no one will know who he is to a discussion group of Columbia University professors in hopes of awakening some part of him that has been dormant and, and finding a new idea. So I want to ask you a little bit about that. So he's seen a sign as on one of his midnight carouses, he's seen a sign up and he thinks this would be an interesting thing to do. He goes along, as you say, in disguise. And this discussion group amongst this group of academics, very near the beginning of the book, is held after a lecture by a very well-known anthropologist called Miranda Klein. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about her and her work. Sure. So Miranda Klein is also someone we've met very briefly in Goon Squad, but I'm not going to actually identify her because it's a little bit of a surprise to find out who she actually is or was. Um, Miranda Klein is an anthropologist who... Uh, who goes to Brazil 
and studies a very remote and and um, a, a tribe of people who are disconnected from modern media, and thereby um, a, a, and therefore a perfect group to study uh, in, in terms of just human interactions without outside influences. And as a re, as a result of her field work. Miranda Klein emerges with an algorithm or a series of equations that explain and predict human affinities. So basically what people will like and what they will want and how they respond to each other. She somehow boils this down into mathematics. This is the fun thing you can get away with in fiction. Um, And she, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a well-respected monograph, but very much in the academic world. But then Someone, and we later learn who this is, actually sells this this material, these ideas, to Bix Bowden as he's developing his social media empire. And her work allows him and other social media kings to monetize social media. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that she creates the mathematical underpinnings of the attention economy, if you will. Mm. And she is horror stricken Mm. by this. This is not what she was trying to do. She doesn't like the results. And although she achieves a certain pop stardom as a result of the importance of her work, she uses that platform to basically rail against social media and all of its um, and, and everything it brings with it. And uh, and and ultimately, she does something called eluding, yes. which is that she casts off her identity and takes and disappears. And that's something else that we you talk about in the book. You talk about this group of eluders. It's it's really interesting. We you, you've given us that description earlier of the two inventions at the core of the book: the own your unconsciousness, this cube you download. It's it's like a brick, a large brick, you download the whole of your unconscious. And I thought it was interesting that it's not just thoughts, but it's feelings as well, all of that. And then as a secondary thing, as an additional element, if you make your conscience, your feelings, your thoughts available to everyone else, you'll have access to theirs. And most people buy into this. And you said uh, there's some throwaway line by someone saying, uh, we all went for it on our 21st birthdays, just as prior tech generations went for music sharing. But there are some holdouts. Those are the eluders or the rebels, and they are helped by a group called Mondrian. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the eluders, of which Miranda is one. Um, And I'm particularly interested, you said at one point, the eluders are the ones who really fascinate me. I've always been interested in identity changes and disappearance. So how do the eluders buck the system? How do they resist these... um, insidiously attractive new inventions well the what what the eluders are trying to escape is not just the the possibility of using this technology because that they have rejected at the outset they are not externalizing their memories and they are certainly not sharing them to the collective but the problem is even if you in the world i've imagined in this future of let's say the 2030s even if you yourself have not chosen to do any of that, everyone is represented fully in the collective just via the memories of other people who have shared. And the analogy would be, let's say, DNA analysis and sharing. So in North America, so many people have shared their DNA results to the collective to find any relations they might have. 
that even if someone has not had their DNA analyzed and or shared that information, all of us are findable in North America. Yeah. We the, Enough people around us have done it that there's sort of a critical mass of information out there and no one is off that DNA grid anymore. So it's not even consensual at that stage, that sharing no. of, of, of exactly. data, of DNA. Exactly. And so that's the idea here with the collective. It doesn't mm. matter whether you share yours, you are there. And the, for the eluders, that is so objectionable and so unappealing and ultimately kind of poisonous that they actually shed their identity, they give up their identities mm. to the collective. And one person likens it to an animal basically chewing its leg off uh, to escape a trap. So they give up their identities in order to exit from this entire structure. And they take on a new identity, and we don't know what happens to them. But you can't just vanish because everyone will know you're gone. So eluders have to hire what are known as proxies to represent them online so that only people who would have expected to see them in the real world will even know that they're gone. And so proxies are mm. supposed to mimic the eluders' online behavior. And that can mean shopping, um, you know, social media, utterances, all of that. Um, and the idea is, you know, this, this doesn't work forever, but for a certain amount of time, you can bluff the presence of the eluder and that gives the eluder time to disappear and do, and, you know, basically just, they get a head start. <laughs> um, and proxies are, uh, I posit in, in the book, the best proxies are fiction writers <laughs> because we're good mimics <laughs> um, and we spend our whole careers impersonating people. That's what fiction writing is. Um, but there is a company, as you mentioned, called Mondrian, which is a not-for-profit run by someone we've also met in Goon Squad, but only when he was a little boy named Chris Salazar. Mondrian helps people to successfully elude and um, and so that's basically what that structure of escape looks like. Mm. Jennifer, a couple of questions. I guess one, the obvious one, how much did you know about technology? How much research did you do to come up with these ingenious inventions, the own your unconscious, the collective unconscious, the idea of the eluders, the proxies, Mondrian, or did that all spring from your imagination? I did 0.00 research on technology. I, I didn't want to know what is really there. Um, as I think is clear, even from this conversation, a lot of this is analogous to what we already have. And so I, for whatever reason, and I'm not incapable of research, I do a lot of it yeah. sometimes yes. when I have to. Yeah. For me, with this material I felt like research was only going to bog me down because I'm not trying to add meaningfully to the world of technology. I'm trying to add meaningfully to the world of narrative. Mm. And so I felt like I just wanted to be unfettered by any real world data or facts about the technology world. Um, so I did no research. I made it all up. What themes around privacy, around technology, around memory, about the elusiveness of the past, the dangers of, of memory, the dangers of having an insight into other people's memories. We see that, for example, it, it, there's one example of a, a daughter who has insight into her father's memory, which is very painful and hurtful. 
What sort of themes did you want to explore through these inventions, through this concept of the owning your unconscious? Well, one thing I should mention is that the actual machine itself came into focus for me very late. So I had written a lot of this material before I really understood what this invention was. Um, And that's important because there's not a top-down quality to the creation of all of this. I didn't start with the machine and say, okay, let's see how everyone uses it. I started with the people and their experiences, and I got glints of what the the mechanics, kind of literally at the center of it, then it would enable all of these things would be. And likewise, I knew in the first chapter that Bix would invent something big, but we don't see him actually invent it. And I didn't know what it would be for quite a long time. The themes that were coming up, and I think that in a way, the themes led to the machine rather than the machine being a, um, a vehicle for exploring certain themes, were a few things. I mean, I was fascinated by the way in which we as a culture have come to revere data. And when I say we, I really should say America. So we revere data. We see it as this um, path to truth, surprising truth, you know, the real gritty sort of um, underpinnings of of, um, of information, true information. But in fact, Data, in some ways, describes us really poorly, both on an individual basis, where humans remain absolutely unknown and unknowable to each other, and writ large, where data is so bad at predicting anything. I mean, 9-11, Trump's election, and now the pandemic, they all seem to come out of nowhere. So what on earth good is all this data doing us if it can't even predict the the major events of my lifetime? Mm. So that paradox was fascinating to me. And of course, the missing element there is storytelling. Storytelling is, is what data interpretation is. And without that storytelling, data is essentially useless. It's just a bunch of information, but it's the human mind interpreting that information that is important. So that was one theme that interested me. Another is authenticity, which is another obsession that we see in mass media, probably more than we see it anywhere else. And that's no accident because it's the artificiality of mass media and now digital experience that makes us crave authenticity. The very Mm -hmm. fact that we use that word as often as we do is a sign that we feel we're not getting it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's been sort of been elevated into a, um, you know, into a a kind of um, a sphere of of, uh, desire and importance because it feels scarce. I had a, a number of questions around authenticity. I mean, that was certainly one of the main themes that I picked out and that Obviously, we're not going to go through the different 14 stories in this book, and I wouldn't anyway because I don't want to spoil it for people, but there were just a couple that I picked out. And so for authenticity, I, I thought we'd just we'd talk a little bit about this um, Rebecca Amari, who we met meet at that first, she's at that first academic meeting that Bix goes to in Colombia in 2010. At that point, she's a sociology student, and she's doing a PhD on authenticity in the digital era. We then, so we meet her incidentally, and then one or two chapters later, she has her own chapter. And she tells us about how she meets someone called, or she contacts someone called Alfred Hollander. Can you tell me a little bit about him? What do we know about Alfred? Let's start with what he was like as a child. 
So Alfred, as a child, became obsessed with what he saw as the artificiality of the behavior of everyone around him and the artificiality of television generally. And he, from an early age, is objecting in strenuous ways to this artificiality. Uh, As a kid, he is trying to prompt genuine reactions from the people around him by doing things like wearing a paper bag over his head at family events with eye holes cut out so that people can't just say, oh, Alfred, you know, how's school? He can't tolerate any of that. If he wears the bag, none of that happens because people are like, what on earth is Alfred doing? They're shocked. And and that's so funny. The way I mean, that scene, we're going to come back to talk about humor as well, but that is one of the funniest scenes, I think. And the grandparents who say, why is Alfred wearing the brown paper bag? It's like, well, just ask Alfred. Just because he's wearing a brown paper bag doesn't mean you can't ask him a question. That, that's a, one of the great comic scenes, I think, that one. And so he and he goes on to further develop this, this quest for authenticity and, and finally, as an adult, arrives at a methodology for prompting authentic reactions in the people around him without actually hurting anyone. And that method is he begins to scream spontaneously in public. And of course, the people around him are appalled, frightened, um, sometimes angry uh, when they realize that he's screaming for no reason. And he he gets his authentic reactions. It, it absolutely interrupts what he sees as the kind of fake and artificial you know, role playing that is constant in in social life and and yields this extreme situation in which he can revel in the authentic reactions, which he likens at one point to the the faces of the people around uh, faces of people on a plane, you know, plunging toward the sea. So he loves this. But of course, this is not sustainable as a, a way of living. And what we see in one of the chapters as described by Rebecca Amari as part of her research. The idea is that this is part of her book on authenticity. He is a case study. We see basically his final screaming episode, which goes very wrong for him and results in a disillusionment on his part with screaming as a way of prompting authentic reactions. Another way of saying that might be, we watch Alfred grow up in the chapter. (laughs) So I wondered this this concept of the the significance of authenticity and and how fast it's disappearing. How do we hold on to it? How how do you hold on to authenticity in the world that we're living in? And you you seem to really be talking about that whole concept of social media where people create these images of themselves and you look at it and and none of that's authentic. How do we hold on to authenticity? I think it's pretty simple. We turn off the machines. I mean, we just interact, (laughs) you know, there's a book that had a huge influence on me many years ago called The Image by Daniel Borston, um, a historian. It was published in 1961. So pre mass media, as we know it, just reflecting on the impact of television in the 50s. And what he isolates is this basically this construct where artificiality leads to a hunger for authenticity But the world of images tries to satisfy that hunger. They don't want to lose us because we're hungering for authenticity. They want to hold us. And you, this, this observation holds true right through everything I have even seen in online culture. 
right up to an app my son told me about last week called Be Real, which uh, which if you subscribe, uh, t- notifies everyone at an undetermined, unpreset time to take a quick picture of yourself and wherever you are. But you, there's no warning of when you have to do it. And the idea is there's no artificiality. Mm. You just have to show where mm. you are, who you're with, what your circumstances are without curation or polishing. And so the idea is it's, wow. it's really real. Well, I was ecstatic. Wow. It's fantastic. But so, you know, and, and of course, people are going to start to find ways to game that and create artificiality within that. Um, I mean, the answer is, you know, mediation is inherently artificial. If you want authentic experience, get rid of the middle layer. <laughs> That's the only way I know. Let's talk for a moment about humor. How important is humor in your writing? Pretty important. Um, I think in a book like this, it's particularly important because what I'm trying to do as I work, and I write very, um, I would say, very spontaneously my first drafts. And and, and you write um, by hand, Jennifer. I wrote that you you write your first drafts by hand. That I do. I write my first drafts of fiction by hand, and I edit by hand on hard copies. And the reason is that my whole method is really one of improvisation. I'm looking to get beyond what I can think of, which is unfortunately too close to what anyone else might think of, and be surprised by what happens. And if anyone's ever watched improvisation, for example, um, dramatic improvisation, it tends toward humor because... The, a group of act- actors are collaborative or comedians are looking for a line of possibility and then driving into it hard, like pushing it to its extreme, which inevitably, if you if it goes well, becomes hilarious. So that's kind of what I'm doing on the page. And my goal is and it's not to say this this book is just a barrel of laughs. There are there are you know very sad parts, but my I would say that my happiest place is when I can push events or follow events to a point where they are both very logical. We've gotten there logically, and yet utterly ridiculous or absurd. That combination I find very powerful because. The goal of fiction is always compression. You know, how much can we suggest about the wider world in a relatively small amount of material? And if I can somehow accommodate two mutually exclusive states, one of logic and one of absurdity, at the same time, that is that is compression because I'm containing two opposites. And one result of that sometime, an ideal result is a kind of hilarity through the sheer impossibility of these two states that are coexisting at that moment. Um, So I'm happy to find humor where I can. And um, I just, I love to laugh myself. It's funny. I'm not a very funny person. A lot of people who are funny on the page are also good jokesters. I, I couldn't remember a, a joke to tell you right now for any amount of money. I'm just not good at that. I'm not the person who makes everyone at the table laugh. But if I can use this improvisational method correctly, I often find that I can I can get to some great humor. Mm. Well, it's certainly a, a very striking feature of this book, which is, though, as you've said, not not without 
a fair helping of extreme tragedy. There are some very tragic stories that arise through it. Let's move to talk now about this concept of structural freedom. So the book, as you, I love your description of it right at the beginning where you said it was a kaleidoscope. That's a that's a great description of it for people that haven't read it. Different chapters are told from the point of view of a multitude of different characters. The narrative shifts around in time. It's not linear. It's not chronological. And it covers various periods in time that basically range back as far as 1965 at one end and into the future in the 2030s at another. And I'm sure you've read this, but I love what you've just said about compressing because I had made a note that Dwight Garner in the New York Times said this about your book. This is minimalist maximalism. It is as if Egan compressed a big 19th century triple-decker novel onto a flash drive. So he got it, right? That's, that's the compression that you've just talked about. And I wondered, why did you choose this fractured structure? Well, I often feel that I don't choose structures exactly. I because it's not it's hard to choose a structure and have it work successfully. What I find is that if I the overall structure of this book in a way was suggested by a visit from the goon squad and that's one of the main things that they have in common. And I stumbled on that structure because I didn't realize when I started working on the material of A Visit from the Goon Squad that I was writing a book. So it really was sort of an accidental structure in which the three ideas are every chapter is about a different person, every chapter stands completely on its own, and every chapter has a different mood and tone and, and feel about it. And that's the critical thing. So that it's not, it, every chapter feels like it's part of a different book, and yet they hopefully fuse into one. Mm. And again, the idea here is compression. If each one stands on its own and has a kind of intensity that is very individual, and I can make them work together, that creates a kind of compression. Mm. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do. And the the way that I the only way I can really make any structure work is to is to try to succeed within it on on a small level and then build on that. So this structure of uh, this this kaleidoscopic structure relies on the successful um, involvement of multiple smaller structures <laughs> that work individually. So that's kind of where I start. And the, it is one of the biggest challenges is to find an individual way to tell each of these stories. Mm. But it's not like I think, okay, here's a story I want to tell. What structure am I going to use? That would never work. Because what I find is that the only time a structure works is if I can find a story that can only be told that way. If I'm picking and choosing, I'm already in trouble. <laughs> So I have a kind of wish list of things that I hope to do, structures I hope to use, people I'm interested in, and this is the most important thing because this is my portal into fiction, places that feel alive for me. That is what that is where Do you I mean start. physical places or mental places? I or? mean physical places. Mm. Physical places are my portal into fiction. And mm. maybe the reason is, as I think it's clear, I'm very idea driven. Mm. I think abstractly, but 
the the entry point for me for fiction is so visceral, so connect, so fundamental in every sense of that word that it precedes the people. I mm. just want to feel an environment. I am an environmental writer. Mm. I'm also an environmentalist, but that's mm. a different thing. Mm. Um, so I start with an environment and the physical perceptions of that environment and the kind of vibe of that environment. Sometimes that has a genre element to it. So for example, the noir, that's an environment. It's sort of a literary environment or the Gothic, which I've used. That's another environment. So I start by perceptions of that environment. The next step is who's perceiving. So people come second. Wow. Yep. It's the, it's the, the, the sensory perceptions and the mood and vibe come first, mm. then come the perceivers. And then comes action because once you have people, mm. they say and do things. And now we're into a story. Mm. I mean, if you think about it, think about the classic fairy tale beginning. And there are actually a lot, there's a lot about, there are a lot of fairy tales in, in the candy house. Once upon a time in a faraway land, we start with time and place. And that's where I start. So back to structures, I can, I can, you know, hope use structures all day long. But if I can't find a way to enter into this environment amidst a structure that helps me explore it, I can't do a thing. So for example, I want one thing I really wanted to do technically in the candy house was use the first person plural, a chapter narrated as we. And because I had never done that before, I knew it would be, I thought it would be kind of cool if I could make it work. I tried that in multiple family units. I, I, I tried it many times before I could make it work. And what it feels like when it's not working, <laughs> when I choose a, a creative approach that is unsuccessful, is that I am being stymied by whatever this choice is. So I'm I'm in an environment, I'm trying to right forward in this, um, you know, kind of uh, extemporaneous way. Let's say I'm trying to use the first person plural. And almost immediately, I feel like I just can't move around. Like I, I'm not, I don't feel a sense of freedom and a landscape opening before me. I feel, I feel like I'm struggling with this form that I'm trying to use. That's a bad um, way to feel. That's not promising. If I've somehow landed on the right structure to help me tell, to help me explore this environment, I have a different feeling, which is one of openness, mm. a sense of possibility and a sense of flexibility. That's what I want to feel. And if I, and, and it can take a lot of attempts before I find the right mix of elements that let me be freed by a structure in an environment to tell a story. So taking that one as an example without uh, giving too much away about who they are, the chapter where you do do that, where you write in the first person plural, the way I think like that is a very emotional, it's got a real emotional depth to it, I think, that chapter. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that. And I think that the reason is that there is no other way I could have told that story mm. because the story is a story about Two little girls mm. who, because they are a pair, are able to 
win over and sort of conquer their father, who has been a terrible father his whole life, and they are his fifth and sixth children. He's done it wrong all over the map. He has destroyed lives. It's not That's not going too far to say that. But these two, by their very plurality, are able to conquer him. Mm. And, but then this is sort of the irony, on some level, he also conquers mm. them. He does. And without that first person plural, there would be no way to tell this story. So that's why I was able to make it work this time. And it's also why I was not able to make it work the other times I tried it, because then it was a gimmick. It was a device. It was mm. a conceit. That is not good enough. It won't work. It only works if I can find the story that couldn't be told any other way. And the payoff for me is that I'm able to write things that I could not otherwise have written. So I have a real incentive to keep finding structures that I haven't used before because it's a way of ensuring that I don't repeat myself. So as well as the broader uh, unusual structure, the individual chapters themselves, and I think this is what you're saying, they, they are idiosyncratic in their own ways. And the, the one I'm going to pick out is Lulu the Spy, of course, 2032. Now, if I've understood that correctly, that chapter you began, I think I read somewhere, that you began working on that as a novella in 2010, not long after you'd finished Goon Squad. And it was the one that was published in The New Yorker under the name, was it The Black Box or, mm -hmm. or something like that? Yeah, so tell us a little bit about the form and the language of that chapter. So the form is it's written in small structural units that are um, that were that are under 140 characters each. So it was tweeted on old Twitter, which is very different from contemporary Twitter, where each tweet is really effectively a paragraph. In old Twitter, each 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 tweet was effectively a sentence. Very big difference. It's so Lulu is a character we've met briefly in Visitor from the Goon Squad um, as a kind of uh, chilly and and commandeering child, um, and we now meet her as a thirty three or thirty four year old woman who is working for the U.S. government as a spy with recording equipment implanted in her body. She has infiltrated a group of men in working on and around the Mediterranean. And the idea is they are plotting against America. And her job is to record their plans and, and actions. And the way the story is narrated is as a list of brief utterances that take the form of, of lessons she learns from each step in the action that she takes. So there's there, the word I never is uttered because she's not narrating her actions directly. She's narrating what she has learned from each action. So this is a pretty weird structure. It's sort of unbelievable that 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 it actually becomes a way to tell a story. Um, what made me think of telling a story this way is a very mundane uh, situation, which is that I had a list on my phone called Lessons Learned, where I was trying to make a list of, of things I wanted to do differently in the future. And every in, time in your said, writing or generally? No, in my life. <laughs> in my life. So I forgot about the list after a while. But before I forgot about it, it has things on it like buy a narrower Christmas tree. <laughs> and years later, 
um, or, you know, maybe a couple of years later, I remembered that we had bought a, a tree that was very wide and blocked all of the light in our living room. And I wanted to make a note not to get such a fat Christmas tree. Um, and the, another one, this was my favorite, was put train ticket in bag the night before, always in all caps. So that's one of those lessons learned where what, what charmed me seeing this list later, and I'm always interested in lists, by the way, was that by simply looking at these, these directives, uh, there was a, an inherent narrative which was what had actually happened that I was trying to correct, but I didn't have to say it directly. Indirect and inherent storytelling and lists are all about that. You know, if you look at a shopping list, that is indirect storytelling. We can learn all kinds of things about the eating habits, the family configuration, sweet tooth, vegan, whatever. We can learn a lot from a shopping list. So I started thinking, this is so hilarious, this list of lessons learned. I want to write a story called Lessons Learned. And so I, that was really what I started with. And that, meanwhile, I was also very interested in using Twitter because it's a, it, was, it seemed like a storytelling possibility that could be of interest. And those two wishes combined because old Twitter was essentially a list genre. It had, you know, anything continuous on Twitter took the form of a list. It's individual short utterances. So those two things melded in my mind. And then the final element was, as I said before, atmosphere. I found myself sort of imagining a spy and I love genre as a, as a way of, of a creating an environment, let's say. Um, I, a, a spy beginning her mission in a, in the Mediterranean, which I really conceived of in directly kind of Homeric and mythological terms. You know, when I, as an American, think about the Mediterranean, that's sort of what I think about that big store of of you know storytelling that 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 is associated with that region. Um, and so I just started writing, uh, and somehow. This list format of lessons learned felt like a way of, of uh, created that feeling of opening up and flexibility and possibility. And so I was able to narrate a, a spy story this way from Lulu's point of view. Mm. But back to the point that it only works if you can't tell the story any other way. This, in a way, is a perfect example of that. Because if you imagine the story of what actually happens to Lulu, told conventionally, what you've got is an utterly generic, uh, you know, spy story of no interest. It's like female James Bond in the 2030s. It's not, there's nothing, there's nothing unique about it, but told in this way, it becomes much more interior, much stranger. We begin to understand the degree to which Lulu's government, the government has sort of manipulated her into essentially sacrificing herself in very extreme ways for their benefit. A lot of this information is, is, is imparted to the reader gradually and, mm. and in a menacing way. Absolutely. It, it felt very sinister as you were reading it, as the, the, the suspense was building up and then as, at the, the sort of gradual reveals, each new reveal was, was quite shocking, I found. Yeah. So, so there would be no other way to do that. 
And so once again, just by sheer chance and you're and little by you can probably see why so much of the time this doesn't end up working. <laughs> you know, I, I it almost feels by a miracle. I light on a a narrative approach and a story that I want to tell that somehow enable each other. So I think having heard that description, you've probably answered my next question, Jennifer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How much fun did you have writing this novel? It can be really fun to have these things work together in ways that are um, that that lead somewhere, and that mm. is a, and 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 arriving at humor through improvisation is really fun. But there's also a lot of frustration because so often it doesn't work. And there are moments where it just feels like it will never work because remember the, a book like this is only can only really um, fulfill its vision if each of these individual pieces works and then the combination works. Mm. So it feels like a kind of high wire act and the nature I've never done any high wire performing in the real world, but I can say that, you know, the feeling of doing it, in writing is that, you know, failure is just around the corner every step of the way. And the possibility of it not working is always with me. And so there's a little bit of a, I mean, there's a lot of fun followed by a, well, okay, that was fun, but let's see what I can, you know, whether I can sort of pull all of this together. That feeling is there. And I should mention one more thing, which is that I rely very heavily on feedback as I go along. You have a writer's group of friends who you see or you speak to every week, and I, I notice the book is dedicated to them. Exactly. And I also have other readers who are not part of that group, but but read what I'm doing as it becomes more of a full manuscript. And I do that because at a certain point, I know what I'm trying to do. You know, after all of this improv, I take stock of it. I decide what it is. I make outlines and all of that. But I don't know whether I'm pulling it off. I have to find out how it is being perceived. Mm -hmm. And so I rely on feedback and getting feedback is really uncomfortable. It's mm. not fun. It's mm. really not fun mm. <laughs> because it, what it means is that every time I do it, I am learning the ways in which I am not achieving what I want. And mm. then I try to fix whatever it is. But there's, there's a lot of discomfort in, in this process. And I sometimes think that we know when we found our vocation, if it's something whose who's uncomfortable elements we're willing to metabolize and and spurred by as opposed to discouraged by so there's discomfort amidst the fun but overall it's you know it's my greatest joy doing this so let's come to the last topic that i want to cover which i think um knits in really nicely with what you're talking about and that is the idea of connectivity connections which seems to me to be at the heart of this book so I wanted to ask about the extent to which the structure of the novel is a metaphor for one of its themes, that is connections. One thing we haven't talked about, and I don't want to give much away, but just broadly speaking, there is a connection between the different chapters. Yes, they're told from the perspective of different characters, but um, there are definite there are connections very intricately woven through, and one character pops up in another. Um, and it just seems to me that, so you have that structure that 
in some ways they're all disparate chapters, but when you look at it, they are actually all connected. And then I looked at the subject matter of these cha- these chapters, and most of them are about connections between people. I won't name the characters, but we've got connections between mothers and daughters. We've got connections between a father, fathers and daughters. We've got connections between mothers and sons. We've got connections between neighbours. And I wondered if this is really a novel, basically, which is about connections between human beings. Some people might say it's a novel about technology and and the risks of that and and what what might possibly flow. But it seems to me what you're saying here is you don't need technology to connect. This, this at essence, is a book about human connections. I would even go further and say that in a way, that's what every novel is about. You know, I feel like fiction is a realm in which we must feel. (laughs) That's the number one thing. And part of that is emotional feeling. I mean, there's a connection that the right, that the reader needs to have with the material. And it has to be emotional, at least for me. I need to feel like I care what happens to these people or what happened if the chronology is not forward moving. And I think that the novel is also a place in which we need to feel in a sensory way, you know, and that's back to the, the importance of environment. You know, what we need to be in the body and in the heart in fiction. And I think that that, you know, the, the, the way in which people um, make each other feel things and the way that people feel for each other and the reader's sense of that is where the emotional engagement comes in. So in the end, the technology is completely dispensable. You're right. And in a way, you could argue that it really is a book about how we should dispense with the technology and just deal with each other. But it's not a judgment because I'm not interested in that. Um, But the way that people that the way that people impact each other and the way that we feel with them for them is at the heart of this novel. And I think most novels, actually. So I think you're absolutely right. Jennifer, thank you so much for speaking to me. I know that you're in London at the moment, so thank you for taking the time out of what I know is an incredibly hectic schedule. Good luck with the rest of your time there. I hope that we'll get to see you in Australia before too long talking about this book in person. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.